Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Today's guest is Michael Bartman. He's the Manitoba Network Manager for SEDNET, the Canadian Community Economic Development Network. Michael and I talk about a lot of things, uh, about the modern approach to empowering communities to be economically sustainable, the current political and social climate in our city, and we talked about his advocacy and organizing work with Make Poverty History. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Bartman. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined via Zoom by Michael Barkman. He is the Manitoba Network Manager for SEDNET, and SEDNET is the Canadian Community Economic Development Network. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Nolan, for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We've I've interviewed you for a couple different projects here and there and always enjoyed our conversations. So I just want to kind of get into, maybe before we get into your role and what you do, but maybe just give me a breakdown for people who haven't heard of SEDNET. What is your mandate? What what all sorts of things does, does SED? It's a big question because it's a big uh, organization, <laughs> but like what what is SEDNET? What does SEDNET do? Yeah, it's a, a good one and one that I need to be asked to to sort of be able to explain it in an accessible, hopefully accessible way. Um, so SEDNET is a really cool organization in my mind. It's a it's a national network. It's almost 25 years old. Um, and it was brought together by <clears throat> a number of folks who are practicing uh, the work of community economic development, which in the late 90s and early 2000s was a really kind of hot and exciting kind of way of, of talking about work that was sort of at the intersection of developing um, community capacity and developing communities, but also thinking about um, doing that in a way that uh, plugged holes and sort of, if you think about a, a local economy in a neighborhood as a bucket, plugging holes that might exist in that leaky bucket economy. Mm -hmm. So thinking about ways to build not only community capacity, but also economic um, capacity of, of a community, but really, really with the principle that everyone who brought our network together was coming from was that communities where they are know the best what they need for their own social, economic, or environmental development. And, and that's still the thread that, it, that really brings our network together, uh, is that principle. <clears throat> um, so now kind of 25 years later, it's a, a national network. There's members across the country. Uh, mainly our members are community organizations, so, so nonprofits or charities, um, social enterprises, so uh, potentially money-making but or a nonprofit uh, enterprise that's has a social or economic mission mm -hmm. embedded as well as a revenue generating and then also cooperatives so as a co-op being a, a local um, kind of democratic uh, economic enterprise uh, so we're kind of like a little bit like a chamber of commerce for those organizations and then uh, quite a bit focused on this idea of a network kind of an ecosystem and a web so we're focused on on ways to bring those members together to learn from each other we do capacity building work for our members especially for nonprofits and then we also do a lot of uh, advocacy on behalf of those members and with them kind of the principle of, of strength in numbers. Incredible. So a lot to unpack there. It's uh, I, I'm hearing a lot these days. We just had an election in Winnipeg. I'm hearing a lot about the plan for poverty. The first bullet point on, on the SEDNET website is ending poverty is one of the core sort of goals, I guess. And you were uh, chair of the Make Poverty History organization. Um, 
So I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. Like, where do you think Winnipeg is at currently? What do we need to do to move the needle to try to make poverty uh, a thing of the past? And um, how do you think Winnipeg has fared in the last like 10 years or so when it comes to tackling that very challenging and complex issue? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll start by talking about like our our members and our network's interest in addressing poverty. It's really, it's a strong and important piece of most of our members work. Um, It partly relates back to this idea of this like leaky bucket economy idea, which I think is a really good visual. So part of that comes from this idea, let's say, let's choose where, where our office is in North Point Douglas. Um, can can really be considered as a leaky bucket economy. There's lots of ways in which money, whether it's in the form of social assistance checks or um, charitable or, or sort of not charitable donations in terms of uh, like food or clothing mm. uh, enters into the community. Um, but it doesn't necessarily stay in terms of monetary uh, value there. So folks might get their welfare check. It barely covers their, their needs. It could be spent only at the cheapest places, say that's a, a, a chain grocery store, um, and then it, it sort of disappears after that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's there's really well-meaning like physical donations given, but it means that, you know, money isn't spent at a local store in that community that's hiring people from that community mm-hmm. who are maybe teenagers or, or single moms or other folks who are close to the poverty line and really need that job in their community at a place where they can trust. Um, you know, so not saying that that we really need um, social assistance, and we really it's it's a beautiful thing when people are able to gift and, and donate physical items. So I'm not critiquing that, but I think there is important thinking if we're interested in ending poverty in ways that consider building up economic empowerment in mm-hmm. local communities and strategies to do so. So that's where I'm I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, so our network sees that in in many different ways. There might we support social enterprises who are doing employment development uh, and workforce training for people. But we also are interested in, in the government's role in addressing poverty. So that's where I've been fortunate to spend a lot of my, my work time, but I've been involved with Make Poverty History for a long time. That's really talking about what's the government's role in addressing poverty and in supporting long-term systemic solutions in housing, in income assistance, in childcare, and in strategies that help build up um, economic empowerment, maybe even economic sovereignty or economic mm-hmm. justice, other ways you could think about it mm-hmm. in a local community. Um, and in my mind, that, that's about sort of ways that we address poverty in the long term yeah. and end it as opposed to sort of always approaching with a bit of a, a Band-Aid right. approach. Well, I think it's interesting to think about all these good intentions that have that are extremely well-meaning, but they might have negative consequences. Like you just said, we're not supporting the local businesses who, you know, or someone who's knitting mittens, but we're donating all these mittens. So the person Mm -hmm. who's knitting them doesn't make the money from it. So maybe thinking along the lines of like buying local and all this movement, all the uh, sort of the pandemic kind of really forced people to take, to, to take a look at what their buying habits were when it comes to buying local and supply chains and all that stuff. But maybe I, I would, I, I want to pick your brain a little bit more about some of the negative consequences of the well-meaning um, activities that Winnipeg does to try to solve these problems, but actually it just creates a whole host of different ones. Do you, do you know what I'm saying there? Is there anything yeah. else that pops to mind when it comes to like things that are well-meaning, but actually are causing some harm in, in some other ways? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. And and there's you know I want to there's some nuance in it. For um, sure. You know, I, I don't want to critique like people have when they have emergency needs, those are emergencies that need to be addressed. And and I think that will in some ways like always exist in a society of people. People will need food today, their house will have a fire and they'll need shelter today. So, you know, I don't want to critique that we shouldn't have emergency charitable responses to things. But I mean, I mean, it's a long, it's it's a story that's existed for a long time, but it's actually one that sort of really clicked in my mind as as a younger person and brought me into the work I'm doing now, which is how local investment towards employment or light yeah. started. Um, so it's a, a social enterprise and or, or a charitable organization in Winnipeg um, who has really filled this gap where, again, in the North End, around December, there was suddenly every local business, especially Indigenous-owned businesses like Nietzsche Commons, which is a long-standing worker cooperative, just lost all of their profits. They weren't able to get, retain staff during that time. And that was at a, you know, that's a, typically a retail season where everybody is hiring. Um, so it's kind of the reverse trend going on there. Mm. Um, and it was sort of identified that the, one of the reasons for that was that folks were receiving hampers and had less reason to purchase things. Mm. Um, and those hampers were filled with goods that were purchased at big box grocery stores outside of the core of the city. So the economic value that was generated was going to a larger multinational corporation at the expense of a local business that was helping to address poverty by hiring people and part of a local economy. I mean, also, you know, a bit there is that a big box store is hiring people and providing jobs, which are important for many people, including as, a, as an entryway. So, you know, there's a bit of nuance there too. Mm -hmm. um, but Light was able to sort of fill in and, and take the really generous and charitable act of giving money around the holidays so that people who couldn't afford food for a nice meal or, or to, to give their kids gifts were able to receive that. But Light was able to purchase and create these hampers by purchasing from local stores, purchasing from local makers, really focusing on indigenous employment um, so I think it was, it's a nice balance of being able to still appreciate the generosity of Winnipeggers, at, especially around that time of the year, while maintaining sort of uh, that, that idea of building up the local capacity of a community. Yeah. I love light. And I love every, everything we're kind of talking about here is all slightly interconnected, right? Like you can't address poverty without addressing economic development, without addressing democracy, without addressing inclusion, without addressing climate change, without addressing indigenous issue, you know, like it's all kind mm -hmm. of connected. So I think that's a very strong point that Sednet has going for it. But how, why did you want to get into this work where it's literal? you have to be kind of a not an expert in all areas, but you have to have, know a little bit about everything to be able to address one thing at a time, right? So how? Do, why did you choose to, to do this work and, and how did you get, like, why is this your part of your mission? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, definitely not an expert, basically <laughs> anything, because uh, that's part of an interesting role in being a network is you're exposed to so many little parts of many things. Right, um, jack of all trades. Right. I mean, sometimes that can be a challenge because then you're, what is it, a mile wide and an inch deep. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that that's also where we really rely heavily on folks within the network to to work alongside people. I mean, so it's not me who is doing the advocacy on each issue, but building capacity within experts to do that in the community. But for me personally, um, yeah, I like I've been trying to think about this sort of from how where I got interested in this work and 
I've been sort of arriving at this story or idea that I think I'm from a, a generation where um, social justice or climate justice, although we probably didn't use that term, issues were really uh, at the forefront, probably from kind of like age 12 onwards of being taught and the talked formative, about. The formative years, yeah. Yeah, and, and not that they weren't before, but I think um, I think definitely that's something I might sort of differentiate from my parents mm -hmm. kind of generation of baby boomers. Um, and I think what interestingly came along with that was quite an individual approach to addressing social issues. Um, and I have these like really significant memories of like being told as somebody who was like a keener and interested in student council and, and cared about things <laughs> of like, hey, you can change the world. Or like, if you get out there, you as an individual, you can change the world. And then what came also along with that was, I, I'm also sort of, I really remember the start of Facebook and, and later on the start of Instagram. Um, so accompanying that approach to social justice was also a really one where um, it was quite a bit of comparison of like, what are you doing to help save the world? Um, mm. And I think that that's changed a bit now because to me that really spoke to that it was a highly individual approach to addressing social justice or climate justice issues. Uh, and I had a perspective shift that was through a couple different formative experiences, one being attending um, the gathering conference, which is what SEDNET now SEDNET puts on. So 11 years ago, I was part of just as a student attending that conference. Um, and a couple other things, including the role that Indigenous activists in the North End, who really pushed back against that narrative and worked together in a collaborative, collective, collective yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so it sounds so simple now talking about it, but I just remember this way that I thought about my activism or what I should do was so driven by individualism or like comparing myself to others mm -hmm. or like being better at activism or being better at changing the world than other people and I have I had to do this like pretty significant 180 to like build that what I think is actually a really quite a white savior mindset out of activism and I'm still working on that because that's the, the culture I come from um, but it's it's been a shift for me to start thinking in a more collective sort of way and, and that kind of naturally led me to be interested in networks work in coalition work um, and like I said, being attending the gathering where I really saw the presence of collective movements coming together was quite uh, kind of life changing for me. So I feel really, really lucky now that I, I get to work at a network because for me, it's networks are doing exactly that or working with others in a collaborative way. That's not about individual kind of mavericks or personalities yeah. trying to do it all on their own. Um, yeah. Yeah. The white savior mindset and yeah. and. And I mean, you could make the argument that philanthropy in general is kind of this thing that sustains itself and continue, you know, everyone, what's that old saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like, you can mean well and want to make the world a better place, but unless you um, talk to the communities that you're wanting to help and see what they need first, it's not really helping because you could do more damage without actually doing that work too. So can you maybe talk about the conversations that you're having with communities and the space that you're creating to actually learn what neighborhoods and communities need as opposed to telling them what they need and then giving them what you think they need um, and how important it is to have those conversations versus just uh, 
throwing help upon someone and thinking that that you're that you're making the world better <clears throat> right um yeah for sure I, I mean there's lots of different ways that that's happening and and that as a network we're interested in that i mean i also kind of comment that i think there's i mean i haven't been been around for that long but that does feel like a significant change in terms of philanthropy approaches in this city um i think we have a lot less of those sort of like dropping in with like a hot air balloon of money <laughs> and giving that to the munchkins of oz <laughs> uh, or whatever it is um i think it's it's a lot more ways that's trying to to meet people where they're at uh and and listen to local solutions and again i mean that to me is a direct result of the, the presence and organizing of indigenous communities in this city that mm -hmm. very clearly say um nothing for us without us or you know, there's a few different iterations of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, for for the work of Sednet, maybe I'll think about that in terms of our our policy advocacy work. Um, yeah, like as a as a network, a few like maybe ten years ago before my time, member organizations. So whether those were local grassroots community organizations or social enterprises, kind of talked to Sednet staff, being like, so when you go talk to government, like, what are you saying? Mm. And how did you get arrive at that opinion? Or like when that coalition wrote that paper and, you know, sent that letter to the premier, how did it get to those opinions? Um, and it has been very important in coalition and our network work to build in ways that we are in this most democratic way as possible coming to a collective and ideally consensus decision around what we're proposing as a coalition or a collective. Um, so for Sednet, there's an annual policy summit where members kind of throw out ideas around, really like this thing, can someone help me draft it so that it's something that government can understand? And then mm -hmm. we work together uh, and then vote on those sort of things. There's a democratic process. Um, so it's not just Michael's ideas yeah. or anyone else's ideas at our staff. It's, it's really coming from a, a collective process and coalitions are always doing the same sort of work. So we I mean, make poverty history as an example is, um, has sort of six provincial priorities and has three city-based priorities for the city of Winnipeg that's advocating to politicians for. Those weren't sort of just pulled out of someone's brain. They came from research yeah. um, in community that was really community driven. Uh, and then through a prioritization process to sort of pick, these are the ones that we're gonna push for right now. Um, and, and, you know, local community organizations do that sort of thing too. I'm thinking of, you know, a important group of our members are neighborhood renewal corporations, of which there's a, a few in the city who build five-year plans that's based mm -hmm. on, on feedback from community. And it's not just about getting experts on boards, but it's about getting lived experience and voices mm -hmm. representing different parts of a neighborhood to create plans. Um, so those are the kinds of things, whether it's community plans or doing advocacy work or ways that I think being community driven uh, helps present itself. Yeah, very cool. Um, I'm spending a lot of time on social media these days, and we just had an election, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of hot takes out there, and even in 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 human to human conversation and interaction, uh, I see it run the gamut from pessimism to cynicism to optimism to hopelessness to all mm -hmm. everything. I'm just curious of your current state of the union when it comes to Winnipeg and the sort of next couple of years, how it's looking, what, how are you feeling with all of your knowledge and connections and conversations that you're having? What, what do you think is, is, is in, in store for the, for us in the future? 
good question. I feel like you've asked me at any different hour over the past week right. since we found out about election results. I'd give you a different answer. Um, you know, I'm feeling I'm, I'm also just always someone who tends towards optimism in the face of, of fear and darkness in our city and in our world. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that way right now. Um, you know, personally, I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about sort of what um, Mayor Gillingham might bring to the table. I think he's now officially mayor, not mayor-elect. Um, and I think it's because of this, not just for, for him, but for knowing that many of the councillors are coming back, um, having had experience on council. When Make Poverty History started our campaign, for the city to create a poverty reduction strategy in 2018. We published a report called Winnipeg Without Poverty. It had 50 recommendations for what the city could do. But more than that, it had a call for leadership um, saying that, you know, we recognize it's not always gonna be the city's role. In fact, it might not often be the city's role in addressing poverty, uh, that's the federal or provincial jurisdiction, but the mayor and councillors play an important role to bring issues to light. Mm. And if poverty isn't on that main sort of agenda of talking points in the public, in media, when mm -hmm. those politicians talk to their provincial counterpoints, we see that as a really huge missed opportunity, knowing that poverty is really serious in our city and folks are seeing that, especially for the past two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the visibility from 2018 compared to 2022 is just... It's immense, yeah. It, I, mean, I mean, it's a few different factors that it's, it's actually gotten worse with demographics in addition to sort of where things are located in our city. Mm -hmm it's made it more present and I have seen that like I think we've really seen and, and we felt proud of ourselves as a coalition because we feel like we've played a role in this in addition to others that even some of the politicians who are the most adamant that it is the city should stick to garbage and roads and bus buses are seeing that you know, there's there's room for the the city government to think about how what its role should be in addressing poverty and homelessness. And if it doesn't sort of at least take up thought leadership about that, mm. it is significantly missing out on, um, on sort of addressing the needs of Winnipeggers. Mm -hmm. So I think I, that provides me with some optimism because I feel like we've seen a shift, you know, from when we started that advocacy four yeah. years ago. And then the other thing that's related to that that's also giving me a, a bit of optimism is I'm seeing sort of across the political spectrum, whether it's more conservative or more progressive folks, uh, that the status quo of how we're, we're creating budgets, particularly around the, the cost in terms of lives and well-being, but also in budgets for allowing poverty and homelessness to perpetuate is significant. There you um, go. Yeah. And, you know, uh, like if we, it, it just, it's like opening, I think people's eyes again, even the most sort of conservative uh, um, financial thinkers that if we arrest someone and put them in the remand center who's living in an encampment and then put them back out there and then they're back in an encampment and then we arrest them and it's the same cycle. That's so bad for that person. It's so bad for the community and it costs us so much. Um, so we need, we need different solutions. There's, of course, many ways that you could approach those solutions. Some I agree with more than others, but I have hope and optimism that we're at least thinking in that way, that if we 
sort of allow those cycles to perpetuate it. It's really, really damaging for people and our communities. Very well said. Yes. Uh, shifting gears from, you know, the optimism <laughs> of poverty to the optimism of climate change. Um, for me, it feels like a, I mean, there's a movie made about this, but it feels like an unstoppable meteor heading for the planet that is just unavoidable. Um, are you optimistic about this at all? <laughs> you know, you're, you said you're optimistic, but what about, what about <laughs> the environment and follow-up question? What are some local things that people can do or local organizations they can collaborate with to, to sort of try to curb this uh, massive, massive issue? Yeah. Um, again, I feel like if you ask me on a different day, I'll be feel different things. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I mean, that that's partly like what I was talking about earlier. Of, like, I feel like we're in a similar sort of age range for how long in our lives that climate sort of despair has been talked about is a significant amount of time for me since I was a child. Um, maybe, yeah. And, and like that does something to our psyche. Yeah. Um, that is... I don't think we've like fully mm. grappled with. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, uh, like, and I mean, the circles and friends that I'm surrounding with are, are like, people are really feeling that climate despair quite, quite heavily. Um, like, I think it contributes to a significant amount of mental health challenges and, and things that people are facing though. Yep. You know, I would, I, not that I wish that on more people, <laughs> um, but I know that there's folks who are my age who, you know, don't, don't think about it at all um so you know not that it's a kind of monolith that everyone of a millennial generation is so concerned about climate change but it for sure is something that feels like quite a bit of despair um i mean yeah I, in addition to being an optimist i believe quite seriously in the power of hope to to address things so you know i think it's important that we raise issues of climate change and the challenges we're facing, but I always want to see that accompanied with um, hope and, and not just sort of fluffy, like, oh, if you recycle, then right. we'll all be okay. Um, but I think it's important to point to like, we as humanity can do something about it. Mm. You know, there's good evidence around like what what is irreversible impacts of climate change right now. Yeah. And so for me, what what is driving hope is, is connected to the work that I do. I I believe really strongly, not just in that idea of sort of local solutions being the best, but I believe also local solutions are really a, a resource we can tap into in the face of, of climate change, mm. particularly for building more climate resilience. Um, you know, so it's not a Winnipeg example, but it's a Manitoba one with the work of Aki Energy is something that gives me a lot of hope. So Aki is a, a social enterprise that has done work <clears throat> um, installing geothermal heating mm. into a number of First Nations. So they started in Peguis and Fisher River and are now working in a few other communities. I mean, so not only is it an exceptional sort of climate mitigation and climate resilience effort, geothermal um, is like a significantly uh, less sort of fossil fuel production once it's set up. Uh, in fact, there's zero, it's, it's a renewable resource. Um, cool. But not only that, Aki was able to create a, an economic entity within a First Nation community that's owned by that First Nation, that's training folks from that community for long-term employment. So it's not people coming from outside in to install geothermal and then leaving, right. but it's building up community capacity to maintain them. And then it's seen a significant drop 
in what those people have to pay in that community for their mm. for their electricity uh, and hydro rates. Manitoba Hydro doesn't love it <laughs> um, in some ways, uh, but it's really cool in my mind for building up the energy sovereignty of that yeah. community. I would love to see more conversation around addressing climate change, taking climate action through supporting more community-owned energy um, uh, examples like yeah. Aki. Um, so you know that's like that's one example of giving me hope. I'm I'm not unrealistic about like what things like the state and like, how much we have to do, but I think there's a lot that people can contribute to um, here in in Manitoba in terms of supporting those kind of solutions and then supporting visions and organizing strategies. So folks like the Climate Action Team that published the Road to Resilience, which is kind of plan for Manitoba's. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in this province, agriculture and transportation are two of our, our largest emitters. So yeah. sometimes, you know, we get swallowed up into conversations around oil production, which is just, you know, obviously something to think about because pipelines cross through our lands. But we have to be thinking, especially around agriculture and yeah. and transportation. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I just really heavily encourage folks to look to their collective and collaborative efforts that are trying to take this issue on. Um, which exist a few of them in this in this province. Very well said. Um, I know you're a young man, but have you considered any um, thoughts of be of running for any sort of office or anything like that? Or what's no. your you know like? I feel like we need more people like you who are maybe not experts in one area, but you know a little <laughs> bit about everything. You can kind of handle yourself in different conversations with different organizations and different everything so like would you would that be something you've considered or is that something you want to avoid or um oh good question now i'm thinking about like oh my who, who's gonna be listening to this um <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, cut it too i mean this does i'm just curious for myself because i think i like hearing you talk i think you have a good perspective yeah. and and i would love to have heard more rhetoric and more conversations like this on the campaign trail for the for the mayor of winnipeg you know um so yeah i'm just curious of your thoughts about political future right um yeah maybe it would be something i would consider for myself personally i feel important like sort of be, be brought to that through community work and like mm -hmm. i think i i want elected folks to be accountable to to movements and to networks and to coalitions and not just sort of maverick actors suggesting stuff so yeah, yeah that would that would feel important to me and, and then i'll always support sort of candidates who are um who are doing that who are connected and coming from community work um and and especially folks who are who are black indigenous people of color and women to to be elected into office so yeah. you know I, I've, I've worked a little bit more on like sort of that political scene to, to support candidates like that um but i also you know believe really strongly that we have voting isn't the only way we can mm. interact or should be interacting with our democracy to um, hence why you know I have a strong interest in organizing and, and policy advocacy and that sort of thing. Um, so that yeah, that's really calling to me right now in yeah. terms of what I want to spend my time doing is working alongside community for that kind of stuff. Beautiful answer. Uh, I'm just curious of your how did you feel the last couple months of the election went in Manitoba like or maybe you don't have to speak about the election in Manitoba, but just generally the, the political conversations that are taking place in our world, in Canada, in the States, everywhere. How do you think um, it's going? Hmm. 
Oh yeah, good question. I mean, for some reason, my brain went immediately to conversations around affordability, mm. rising cost of living, because that feels like it's sort of is or becoming the number one issue. For it's people. pretty all-encompassing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that, like, of course, COVID is still here and it's still something we're thinking about, and it's still really a, a hugely prevalent and challenging issue, especially for folks um, living with disabilities. Yeah, um, as a key kind of issue, but it has been like very quickly replaced by rising cost of living, which is, you know, born out of, partly out of the pandemic, yeah. the pandemic's effect on the economy. And yeah, I just, I, it's, there are definitely things that are disturbing or, or frustrating. <laughs> Good around sort of, yeah. <laughs> Especially around like what solutions are being proposed to address these challenges. Um, yeah, and just like knowing, uh, yeah, being having been involved in sort of anti-poverty advocacy for so long and knowing like these very acute and challenging, extremely challenging scenarios that people are, are facing as a result of government decisions and lack of investments in the things that we know that could work for for communities, housing and childcare and income supports and transitions to meaningful work, people are able to. Like there's just these so many things that just are sitting there that governments could pick up uh, and do. Mm. Um, so that feels like, you know, it's interesting, like it's gotten worse, but I also think about in terms of like the cost of living and affordability conversation, like who is that for um, mm. and who has it gotten worse for? Because. I think it's like the amount of people living in poverty has grown, but I, I think for many people, their situation is just as bad because it was really bad four years ago. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there's also a lot of ways that I think folks who are more who are quote unquote middle class, um, myself included, are, are fe feeling the squeeze for sure yeah. in terms of, so I don't want to erase those things either. Um, yeah, so I, I maybe just because my work is, is often thinking about sort of solutions that's helping to address people, people's situations who are living below the poverty line, I just think that that's getting erased a little bit. Mm. Um, but I see some good kind of win-win-win solutions that are thinking about ways to build up job and employment opportunities for people with facing barriers to employment that also support sort of green or or kind of climate resilient projects, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'm excited about is um, there was a few SEDNET members, uh, mostly social enterprise organizations, and then supported a bit by um, folks in the labor movement, especially Manitoba Building Trades, who worked for about two years kind of advocating and pushing the city of Winnipeg to adopt um, a social and sustainable procurement policy. Mm. If you had asked me like four years ago, even if I knew what I like, kind of knew what procurement was, but if you asked me if I cared about it, I'd be like, no, not really. Right. And now it's something that I spend quite a bit of personal uh, my time on, um, and also something our network is really, really interested in. And I've I've come quite enamored with this this idea of how shifting procurement might might help. Gosh, this is such a tangent, but I'm going to bring it back. No, please. <laughs> um, um, but we we had this kind of two year campaign that was encouraging the city that rather than just choosing the cheapest option right. when it's buying goods that it needs or services, which could be everything from building a new bridge to paying for catering for a meeting 
to painting a room at City Hall. There's so many different things that the city spends money on. There's a couple of stipulations, like it couldn't be awful for the environment. It couldn't have child, child labor, but basically it always picked the cheapest option that was going to deliver what they wanted, Yeah, which is fine. But this was asking for, can we embed community benefit, social benefit, economic, environmental benefit within a purchasing decision in addition to getting the job done at a fair price? Um, and the city agreed and then spent a year working on a plan and it now the city of Winnipeg has a sustainable procurement action plan. Uh, and it's not a super sexy issue, but I think it is a really cool thing to think about in the face of the climate crisis and the affordability crisis that government purchasing, which is a huge, like a massive part of every government's budget can go to contributing uh, can contribute to addressing some of those challenges. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can, through government spending on procurement, we can make sure that folks who are have faced, you know, loss of work or economic barriers because of the pandemic or because the affordability crisis are included in those those jobs or those yeah. work opportunities. We can, yeah, see ways that that climate issues um, that we're making sure that you know there's there's renewable energy that's built into these projects and a company that can prove that is awarded more points so that's kind of one example of something that's exciting to me that's helping address some of those challenges i brought it's, up it, it's a perfect example of the work that you're doing in that nothing exists in a vacuum nothing exists separate from anything else if you have if you're working on you know yeah painting painting a wall at city hall there still should be a component of understanding how that's going to affect climate change how it's going to affect local economies all all the good stuff and yeah i think that's one of the greatest sort of failures of the last few decades is that the only thing that mattered was the profit all that mm -hmm. mattered was cost and nothing else was even considered when you know all thing you know not maybe that black and white, but for the most part, that was the greatest and most important thing on a, on a priorities list. So I think now that people are starting to understand that that is not the only thing that a healthy economy needs for just mm -hmm. to, to succeed and to be flourishing. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a perfect example of like just the holistic approach to everything as opposed to just the one, uh, one budget budget line. Um, so maybe just before we get to the the final little segment here, how are the last point is democracy and directing our own future. How would you how would you uh, define that, and what do you think the future of Winnipeg looks like in the next, let's say, five years? Uh, yeah, good question. I mean, I was maybe I can tie in what I was going to reflect there on what you summarized. That I mean, I think we're like forty years into the influence of neoliberalism on our economy and sort of trickle down uh, <laughs> economics that hasn't worked. Um, and we're dealing with, I think, like strong uh, kind of outcomes of, of that being present across government policies at all levels of government in various mm -hmm. ways through the past four decades. Um, and I think that, you know, that has had a significant influence on on democracy, especially in terms of voter participation. I mean, mm, I, I, like, yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm prepared right now to sort of comment on the reasons why, or the reasons how we could increase voter participation in Winnipeg. It still is like pretty shockingly low. Abysmal, um, yeah. Yeah. Like other than it's, I mean, it's, it's nothing new. People have said this, but like when you look at the 
the many charts that came out after the election and, and see where voter turnout was the lowest. It's in wards like Minarski and Point Douglas in communities that have been totally left out and left behind and purposely excluded from the economy pretty um, systematically over the past four decades. And certainly beyond that, in the case of Indigenous communities who have been, you know, excluded from the economy, the economic table in this country since colonization. Um, so it's kind of no wonder people are, <laughs> yeah. are pretty... Disenfranchised? Disenfranchised, yeah. unimpressed, uh, unenamored, don't want to vote because nothing changes, etc. Um, you know, and, and, and also in this city, at least, there, you know, there wasn't a ton of diversity in terms of, um, I mean, I don't have any, I don't know if there's a strong breakdown of data yet in terms of that, but I think it really matters that people are seeing themselves reflected in who they're able to vote for. So that's, that's kind of an added challenge to that. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's such a, a, a challenge because it's not an easy fix to address, um, the kind of abysmal state of, of participation in, in voting. What I will say though is that, I mean, this relates to what I said earlier is that I don't think that voting is the only mm. kind of marker or of a healthy democracy. It's certainly one, an important one uh, and one that I would like to see addressed. But I also really respect that, especially for a lot of indigenous communities, you know, colonial elections for colonial governments uh, is, is not resonating and it's not important and uh, it's not where people want to invest time or power or money. Uh, and there's sort of a feeling that any party or any politician will kind of perpetuate uh, continual colonial systems. Um, so I really respect folks who feel that way and choose purposely not to participate in, in voting in that way, but certainly contribute so much to community and so mm -hmm. much to organizing for more equitable and fair communities through mm -hmm. other ways. Um, so I mean, that those move like our, our movements and organizing in the city gives me a lot of hope. I want more people to participate for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that that's an important piece of our democracy. Well said. Um, that that's not. I don't want to be ignored either. But I, yeah, I don't think anyone has sort of the silver bullet for yeah. what's going to help address uh, voter voter turnout in Winnipeg. No kidding. Yeah, it's a very complex. I appreciate you just helping me to helping break things down and and just acknowledging the uh, the the complexity of all these interlocking systems that maybe used to be dealt with on their own and now we have we understand that we have to kind of take things all into consideration as opposed to just okay we'll focus on this and then we'll focus on that it's like no maybe if they don't look like they're related on paper they are related because everything's kind of related at the end of the day when it comes to politics and and uh sustainability and poverty and every you know everything we've talked about in 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 this uh conversation so thank you for for helping me break break it all down uh, so at the end of our time together, we do a segment called Just Because, where it's questions about the causes you care about and the effect that it has on your life. Uh, are you okay mm. to go, go through those seven questions with me? Sure, yeah. All right, question one. What is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Uh, my mom and grandma took me to a Save the CBC <gasps> protest in the 90s, I forgot what year, Um so saving public radio. Mm. <laughs> uh, my grandma, who who died last year, was a, a really strong public, yeah, advocate of of public uh, broadcasting and and media, and was a constant CBC and Winnipeg Free Press sort of 
uh, writer letter to the editor writer amazing i love it well sorry for your loss but she sounds like a, a legend oh yeah she was a pretty rad person so yeah anything that was her cause maybe is by what i remember sweet that's great uh question two if money and politics and logistics were no issue at all you could just snap your fingers what's the what what would you do in support of your current cause oh boy um oh uh Oh, so many things. How do I combine it into make pretend it's one thing? Uh, like enough good, beautiful looking, clean and energy efficient housing for everybody. Yeah. And and in a dense way that also helped create a transit system in our city that was functional. Oh, very simple. Super simple. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, like all of that. Sure. It's and like of- the, the housing would be like, owned by nonprofits and co-ops and, and indigenous organizations and supported by public money, et cetera. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, excellent answer. I love it. Question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or biggest stigma about your cause? Yeah, maybe, I mean, for that one, I'll maybe answer a bit more broadly about community economic development, um, which is, I know, pretty broad. Um, yeah, biggest mis- misunderstanding might just be a lot, like there isn't an understanding or, or, sort of thinking about new approaches to addressing community or economic development mm-hmm. in a way that's more holistic or led by community is just something not a lot of people necessarily think about. And I know that's sort of something that is kind of on us too, to, to be bringing that, rising that, raising the profile of that. Having those conversations. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Maybe let's mm-hmm. challenge people, whoever's listening to this right now, go out and have a conversation about community economic development with one of your neighbors and just see where it takes you. You never know what can happen. Uh, question four, what's a recent victory, either personally or professionally or both, that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I talked about it a bit, but definitely this this kind of huge thing that's happened with the city about considering how $400 million of city spending can look different to contribute to local community benefits, economic, environmental and social is a huge victory that comes kind of on the shoulders of many, many people and coalitions and groups who've been, been working on that. So that's one thing, but I'm going to tie it to one other thing because I haven't mentioned it much, but um, the, the CED community in Winnipeg and Manitoba came together uh, in late October for our annual gathering. Uh, so I'm feeling really proud of our team that helped put this, this event and this conference together. Um, but the theme this year was cultivating joy and mm. it really leaned into um, the work of community organizations, of charities, of nonprofits, and of activists has been so hard the past two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And we needed some some joy and not just kind of meaningless, frivolous joy, but there's joy in connecting with each other and feeling like you're part of something bigger. But we also just did have fun at this event too. So feeling proud of that and, and grateful to contributions from many different people, uh, organizations, including the Winnipeg Foundation that supported that event. Beauty. Yeah, that I that's another thing that got me since I started the foundation is like, there is so much good work being done out there and so many people mm-hmm. working their asses off to make the city better. Uh, it's It's if you do this work, it's hard to stay cynical. I used to be kind of a like emo, you know, oh, the world sucks kind of a guy. And right. since I got this job, it's like, holy smokes, there's so many amazing champions of our of our city that that uh, if you go looking for them, you can find them, you can connect with them and you can work with them to make the world better. And it's it's a it's a pretty cool vibe nowadays. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, and if I can just add to that, like one of the thing, one of the things that made the gathering so fun is we had Three queen or three queens from Sunshine Bunch, which is mm. a drag collective uh, at Sunshine House, 
she's just it, it's incredible work also one of the queens recently was a mentor for me when i did a, a drag mentorship so oh, i started nice. doing that um and it, they just like epitomize joy to me I, that's what i was gonna say things. talk about joy exactly yeah this creative work while also working at a really important frontline organization that recently has started a, a mobile um uh, overdose prevention mm. uh, van so you know it's like doing this really really important harm reduction work well building art and joy and color and beauty into our city too. It's, it's really awesome. Love it. So maybe my, my victory is just even knowing those people. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, awesome. Question five, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Uh, oh, I don't know best piece, but I'm thinking there's two, two elders who've been really important to me um, through my activism work. One is elder grandma, Geraldine Shingoose. Mm-hmm. Uh, A great follow is... on Twitter. Yeah, she's great. Oh, good. Yeah. And another is Elder May Louise Campbell, um, who has been the, the elder at the gathering and has p- been part of CED work for a long time too. Um, uh, Grandma Shingus like often sort of talks about the role of, of joy uh, in our work and in supporting communities. Um, and, and Elder May Louise Campbell at this year's gathering sort of talked about the simplicity too of, of joy and of maybe even of, of hope. So maybe relating to what I've said today, which is why I'm thinking about it, but both uh, elders, you know, in, in variety of ways have faced, you know, so many, so many challenges, but really exude love for, for people, love for their communities. Uh, and that really leads their ad- activism and advocacy work. Um, so I really watch that and learn from them. And when they spoken to me personally, or when they have offered blessings or, or words at, at events that's often that love has really been what they've led with um so i don't know i can't think of like the, the phrase that they've said but leading with love um, yes. has been an important piece of, of teaching that i've been offered beautiful yes that's wonderful uh so staying on the advice train what question six what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to him um <laughs> uh gosh good question <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'd i say don't feel as shy about being nerdy about giving a damn. <laughs> uh, that, that's a, a really good thing. Um, and connect with others who also give a damn, if I can say that on this podcast. Hell yeah. Uh, and um, and that, that's a really helpful and important thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So so connect with the, the folks who care. They're, they're who you want to be with. I wish I would have known that being a nerd growing up would have been you know it kind of became celebrated in our 20s and 30s you know it's yeah. weird that now nerds are looked to as like oh man that guy's cool he, he really likes whatever it is you know like I, video games is what my thing was so like right. I, I used to get mocked for it and now it's like okay now there's multi-millionaires that are celebrated and you know <laughs> like all this stuff so yeah i think the 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 the, the, the shift of nerdiness from being this thing that was mocked to this thing that's celebrated is something i wish i would have known growing up right <laughs> Yeah, it turns out people like when other people have passions yes, for things. <laughs> exactly. It's so good. Uh, thank you, Michael, for your time. The last question is the hardest one. What do you want to be remembered for? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, I brought her up earlier, but thinking about my my grandma, who was um, an activist in a variety of ways. She was a teacher um, and a part of peace movement in the 80s, too. She and my grandpa organized actually a bus that brought teachers to North Dakota, kind of right at the state of, of sort of potential of nuclear 
war and that's impacted Manitoba. Like that was all over the, the, the papers is sort of, we were on this trajectory. Um, anyways, I, yeah, it was just really amazing at her celebration of life, what was talked about sort of that impact, um, mm-hmm. but of, yeah, I mean, it relates to sort of, I think what's been a thread for what I've said today, which is that like, doing that alongside community and with other people and not sort of for the glory and fame for yourself individually. Um, but being remembered as like a caring <clears throat> part of community and, and being a helper and, and working with people yes. uh, has sort of been this teaching been how my grandma was a really important presence in my life, what she exuded. Um, so that's the kind of person I think I'm, I'm wanting to continue and wanting to grow into and to be. Um, that feels sort of most important to me. Beautiful. I look forward to working with you in the future. I think uh, I'll be, you know, I'll be in Winnipeg for a long time. If you're sticking around here, I look forward to seeing the work that you're doing and continuing to try to support it and shine a light on it and uh, and continue to work together and making the city as best as we can. So Michael Barkman, thank you for your time. And uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thanks, Nolan. Yeah, we're here for the long run. Building oh, yeah. up this place. <laughs> Sounds good. Have a good one. Thank you again, Michael, for a wonderful conversation. This was one of those chats where I walked away thinking Winnipeg is in good hands. Um, There's so much young, passionate, talented people in our city working and organizing and just trying to improve things, trying to make things better, trying to make things better for everyone, not just a certain group or this group or that group, but just for everyone that lives in this city. And honestly, anything Michael is involved in is a worthy cause. And um, yeah, just thanks for your time. Thanks for having this conversation and thanks for being with us. All music on this show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can search Trenton Burton on Spotify to hear some of his original original tunes and because an effect is a podcast of the winnipeg foundation to learn more about twf follow us on all social media platforms at wpgfdn or by visiting our website wpgfdn.org i'm at nolan mcnoll on all the socials thanks so much for listening thanks so much for um subscribing as well to the wherever you happen to be listening to this and remember the opposite of poverty is not wealth the opposite of poverty is enough Bye-bye.